this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Shivani. I'm Skip, and we are very excited to have Peter Wagner joining us here today. Peter Wagner is an attorney and the executive director of the Prison Policy Initiative based in Northampton, Massachusetts. He co-founded the Prison Policy Initiative in 2001 to spark a national discussion about the collateral effects of mass incarceration. His report, Importing Constituents, Prisoners, and Political Clout in New York, launched the national movement to end prison gerrymandering more than a decade ago. Thank you so much for joining us, Peter. Glad to be here. <laughs> so one of the most interesting things that we like to start off our, our uh, segments with is this concept of inflection points, um, which basically are you know any pivots or turns in your life, either your personal or, or professional, uh, that really led to you to where you are right now. So my question to you is, um, could you, could you share some of those inflection points, or what would you consider the most important one to be? I got into prison work because I was an anti-apartheid activist in high school in the 1980s. So I oh, was wow. doing political work opposing the system of enforced racial segregation in South Africa. And right around the time I graduated from high school, Nelson Mandela got out of jail, went on a um, speaking tour around the world. I remember shortly after graduation in 1990, seeing him speaking in on the, um, in Boston by the river. And it was clear that apartheid was ending. Um, and then I go to college and I'm looking for another issue. And when I get to college, I discover that there's apartheid in this country, it's called the prison system. So I like just change. And then spent a lot of time looking for ways to make an impact. Because you know, a lot of strategies didn't seem like they were working. And cars, you know, there was a time um, in the in the 1980s when people talk about prisons. You know, number of people in prison is growing. If it continues at this uh, at this rate, I know this sounds crazy, but it could reach a million people. Oh, wow. And that was considered crazy talk. And now we're at 2.2 million people. One percent of the population. Right. Right. And so it kind of blew past everyone's kind of worst nightmares. Um, and then I went to, I decided I wanted to go to law school. And I had this whole plan. I wanted to help incarcerated people to file civil rights lawsuits to sue their keepers. Mm. And I learned two things when I was in law school. One was that we maybe don't need more prisoner civil rights lawsuits. We need more lawsuits that win. And I learned that I personally wasn't cut out to be a litigator. Gotcha. My heart was really in policy work. And I had some great internships, um, but I was already time of my last internship, I was already running the prison policy initiative on the side. I remember I was working in the Same Capitol right. building for the Capitol Defender in New York State, and then I would take my lap, my personal laptop down to the McDonald's during lunch, and I'd be answering emails from state legislators at the other end of the building, wow. who may for all have I known been in the same McDonald's emailing me. <laughs> That's and, passion right there. And I learned, oh, this is my calling. Like criminal defense work is very important and people have to do that, they right. have to do that well. But like I really wanted to do the big picture policy stuff so that was my personal calling and I was really looking for a big picture issue mm -hmm. that would allow me to tell the story of mass incarceration. Absolutely. And I started by, when I was looking for a topic, I started looking for what I called the myths of criminal justice. Things that people in, in the movement were saying but that were technically wrong. And if we were ever at a situation where criminal justice reform was not something that people laughed at, it would help if we didn't have talking points that were dumb. Right. Like, like, let me give you like a simple, right. silly one. Um, it, like, 
there are these um, maximum security cells that people are put in solitary confinement right. for, like supermax, or they're called control units. Mm -hmm. And there was this thing that people would say, like, oh, you couldn't put a dog in a control unit cell because you'd go to prison for animal cruelty. Well, that's actually not true, because under the law, you can be incredibly cruel to animals in this country. <laughs> And even if you scale a dog up to person size, no, no, that still actually would be legal to torture an animal that way. Oh, wow. So, like, this talking point doesn't work. Right. But if you want to use an animal, another analogy, there's a similar one. Someone that has one horse doesn't have just one horse. They might get a donkey or a second horse because horses get mentally ill if you keep them alone. Mm. Like, social creatures need social interaction or they get injured mentally injured right and so people that care about animals won't take a social animal and keep them alone well if people are going to care about other people mm. and have the basics of like human decency or medical knowledge to know that people are social animals you wouldn't lock a human being in a closet for 23 hours a day and where the only human contact that you give them is someone who doesn't like them forcibly taking them to the shower once a week right that's not humane and that's not appropriate so like Let's not use this talking point, let's use this other one. Right. And well, the punchline to this long story is I did a few of these, and on the list of dumb things that people said <laughs> that I wanted people to stop saying was this idea that the Census Bureau counts incarcerated people as residents of the correctional facility and that it actually matters and is screwing up the federal budget in our democracy. Right. And well, the first part of that's true. The Census Bureau does count incarcerated people as if they are residents of the correctional facilities. But I'm like, so what? It can't be enough people moved around to make a difference. And it turns out I was right about one part of it. The federal budget and federal grant formulas are too smart to be skewed and to confuse by how incarcerated people are counting. So poverty formulas, the people that wrote the federal government's poverty formulas were too smart. They correct for this. Mm -hmm. So there's no prison town that's getting a ton of poverty aid because prisoners are poor. Like, no, government's smart. But it turns out our election system is not so smart. And it is transferring political power around states, and it is changing the outcome of elections. And I said, okay, so this is true. I'm going to put my list of dumb things aside, and I'm going to go and put some numbers on this problem just to prove that it's real in a way that I can explain to people, and then see, like, is there a solution to this? Or is there more than one solution? Right. So that was kind of the path that I went down to end up where I am. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, so you, you read up both of these concepts, one being you know a flawed dialogue or talking points that are being employed by this movement um, that you know, are either sort of uh, misused or, or just generally not effective, and then employing statistics and numbers. What, in terms of an interplay of the two, what have you found that's, that's, that's most effective um, and perhaps the, the population that it's most effective towards? It depends. I mean, I really like numbers and telling right. stories with numbers, and that's my personal calling. Okay. Most people don't like numbers. Let's just be clear about that. But there are some people that really like numbers, and they see their job is to make numbers interesting to other people. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I was able to luck into was a handful of reporters who make their living telling stories about numbers right. and helping them talk about my work. And what I discovered was it was very important to learn from what they did. So for example, it used to take me four hours to explain prison gerrymandering. <laughs> and you would be confused by the time I was done. You'd be exhausted <laughs> and you'd be confused. And well, when I worked with the New York, someone who works at the New York Times and he did this um, op-ed about my work and the headline was why some prison district legislators want their prisons to stay full. 
And in the middle of it, he had this one sentence. He said, without counting prisoners, using, without using prisoners as padding, there are seven districts in upstate New York that would not meet federal minimum population requirements and would have to be redrawn. Mm. So this very simple sentence right. used to take me 15 minutes to explain. <laughs> right. So now I adopted this sentence as my own, and now it took me three hours and 45 minutes to explain prison jamming, right? and just learn to just nibble away right. and accept these hints mm -hmm. from the outside and to make this very complicated issue a little bit easier to understand and to kind of look at all times for other ways to do this than throughout um, statistics. Right. Like, um, I love to tell people about the time I went to rural Iowa. There's this man named Danny Young in this small town of Anamosa who got elected to the city council with two votes, neither of them his. He goes to vote one day, and the city councilor's retiring. There's no one on the ballot, mm. so he leaves the polling station, goes to work. And then when he comes home, he gets a call from the mayor, and the mayor says, um, Danny, would you like to be city councilor? You got two votes. <laughs> it turns out his wife and a neighbor voted him into office. Love it. Now, why are there no candidates and like no voters? Because he lived next to a large prison. So actually, so wow. he lived in a district that was basically just his house and a prison. And a prison. That's incredible. And I had been looking for this kind of story, this anecdote, because someone once made a joke like this. <laughs> I actually went looking to see if this was real, and lo and behold, it actually did exist How did in you this time. Danny from Iowa. Um, I would go. I had a lot of Google alerts okay. set up okay. for anything okay. about Absolutely. census and population Makes in prison, sense. and I read all of them and organized them all. And if there was a reference, I would follow it up until you know. Just most right. of these were false leads. Like there was a whole. I had a whole wish list of things I wanted to find. Mm. You know, um, in it's often very important to draw districts so that people of color can elect the candidates of their choice. Right. And it's something that the people that draw plans and who work in the federal government and the voting rights division overseeing the electoral plans that communities draw, they've always kind of wondered, is it possible for us to screw up and see a prison and think that this is a large African-American community and think that this is a district that's going to elect an African-American? Is it possible for us to screw this up? And they've always concluded, probably not. And they did. In this rural county on the eastern shore of Maryland, there's this county called Somerset County, Maryland, that in 300 years from the time of slavery had never elected an African-American to county-wide office. This is a county that's actual living population is 30% African-American, but it never once elected an African-American to county-wide office. Oh, wow. no one who, almost no one who worked in senior positions, in the, almost none of the employees in the county were black. Um, none of the senior people in the school or the town, none of the jobs went to African-Americans. This was a county that was 30% black, but entirely white controlled. And why? Because they had a form of government called at-large elections. So they had five members of the county commission, and all five members ran at-large and had to get the majority of the votes in the county to vote for them. And since the county was 70% white, boom! Five white people got elected, right. and you know another four years of white people controlling this county. <laughs> well, the ACLU sues them for violating the Voting Rights Act. It says you need to draw districts so that an African American has a chance. So the African American community can pick the candidate of their choice, who may be white or may be black, but at least African American African Americans can be represented. Right. And they draw a district to settle this lawsuit, and bad luck. 
a white guy gets elected. And then very quickly in quick succession, a prison is built in the district. Then the next census is taken and they redistrict again. And because the prison's majority black and it's also in the basically the black part of the county, it's hard to understand on a podcast, but it splits the black community into two pieces mm. so that neither one is large enough to elect a candidate of their choice. So you still have these essentially in practice majority white districts. Right. And the one districts that looks to be majority black, and you see with the air quotes here, that looks majority black actually isn't because it's got this huge prison in it. Right. So its actual voting population is majority white. And this goes on for two decades. And it becomes this slowly becomes this big kind of voting rights crisis mm -hmm. in Maryland. But like this was on my little checklist. And so when we, you know, I saw this case, you know, I followed this little one to the end of the earth. Right. And that story of Somerset County, Maryland became a big part about why the state of Maryland passed statewide legislation to solve this problem at the county level, at the municipal level, and at the state legislative and even congressional level. So it was about looking for stories of real people, you know, struggling to um, change their county for the better and to make sure that the right people got these jobs and the right policies were mm -hmm. made. Um, that this overlap with prison gerrymandering, helping to tell that story is one of the explanations for the problems in this county was something that I had to look for because that was not an argument that works statistically. Right. Um, you know, the statistics there is like the punchline. This is a district that 60% of, of this district is mm -hmm. actually incarcerated. 60% of this district that's supposed to be electing an African-American is incarcerated and it's electing a white dude right. and has been for 25 years. That's incredible. Right. So you mentioned um, a kind of a congressional response. And I know you've also done work with the Maryland State Legislature to pass a law to, to, to end this. And also you've done work with New York, um, Illinois also has some, some investment in that. Do you think there's a possibility? Um, I know in the past uh, Congress there was kind of an idea of criminal justice reform could maybe get passed before the election. Now that's kind of been put off. But do you think there's a possibility to maybe get this at a, at a federal level, get this passed, um, banning uh, prison gerrymandering at all? Well. I don't know what Congress is going to do, um, <laughs> if anything, on any of But we actually hope that the Census Bureau will change the rule. So states can adjust the census and local governments can adjust the census, right. and that's good, and we encourage people to do that, and California is planning to do it in 2021. Um, but the Census Bureau writes their own rules about where they think different groups should be counted. And they were thinking about counting incarcerated people at home, and they announced in June that they are not going to change it, but they said, we want to hear what the public thinks. And they solicited comments from the public and uh, through September 1st. And 100,000 people told the Census Bureau that the Census Bureau was wrong, a prison is not a residence, and incarcerated people should be counted at home. Mm -hmm. And I believe the previous record for the number of comments the Census Bureau has ever received was 1,700. So they got 100,000 people told That's them that a prison is not a residence. So I hope that the Census Bureau, once they dig out from right. those comments, will look at their logic, look at their facts, and find some of the mistakes that they made. And I'll just you know, to talk about statistics. The Census Bureau, I think, didn't understand that prisons look permanent, but mm -hmm. the people inside are very transient. Right. So the average sentence is three years. Right. Um, but people serve less than than the sentence that's imposed. And also people are moved around a lot while they're incarcerated. So the typical time that someone's at a given prison in New York State is seven months. Mm -hmm. So it's actually very transient. Right. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, 
And in terms of you know, points in contact with, with this very real issue, uh, so it's sort of understood, and I think there's been a lot of articles that have spoken to this, the most recent one I can remember being a San Francisco Chronicle um, photo series that documented the children of inmates, um, the quote-unquote populace that have been left behind by the criminal justice system. It, in sort of your work and as a criminal justice reformist, um, are there any personal narratives that have particular, particularly hit home uh, for this issue and in terms of addressing kind of broader-ended um, criminal justice reform? Well, let me take a step back on that. I okay. think what's really kind of exciting, you know, about that that Chronicle series right. and also like the kind of thread that that comes from mm -hmm. is this new willingness to look at the criminal justice system as being more than just the people that we send to be punished. Right. We're recognizing that, oh, the people that we lock up have families, have jobs, have a community, have an apartment, have a future, and that we need to, that we want communities to be strong and stable. And there's all kinds of social justice and economic and community welfare reasons to not just act like we're gonna throw away the key. Because you know what, we don't. Most people are gonna be released. Right. Some people, very quickly. I mean, here, most people are in state and federal prisons. Oh, let me talk about a number. 11 million people go to jail in a given year. That's 11 million people whose lives are being disrupted for a couple days mm -hmm. at a time. And why does it sometimes cost a dollar a minute for someone to make a phone call home from a prison or jail? because the sheriffs and the companies that got the contracts can do whatever they want. But that's 11 million people calling, oh, I don't know, two people each? So that's 22 million people that have to pay this unconscionably high phone call price. And so there's a kind of willingness to not just be tough on crime, but to be smart on crime and to look at the costs. Right. On not just the economic costs, but the social costs, and to really kind of question some of those policy decisions. And for me, and the kind of work that we do, where we feel like the most emotional resonance is when we can make some of these things really come alive for people. Like, you know, visiting a loved one who's incarcerated is physically very hard, it's very emotionally very hard, but it's very important to the people that are doing the visiting and the people that are on the inside. Mm -hmm. And society should make that easy for people. And that means don't put the prisons in the middle of nowhere. It means make it easier to get there. Right. You know, don't have the phone calls cost a dollar a minute. And don't do what a lot of jails are doing, which is banning in-person visits right, and saying like, calls. oh, you're not allowed to visit anymore. You're gonna have to do it via computer and we're right. gonna make this so horrible. You're gonna then, maybe, maybe you'll pay us money and do it from home. So it'll be quote unquote more convenient, but um, it won't be any good right. and it keeps families apart. And so like, you know, there's this bill that's passed in California right now to prevent jails from banning in-person visits requiring them to keep the ability for families to go and visit in person right. and we're waiting to see if the governor is going to sign it he has until the end of the month um, so anything that allows people to think beyond the individual act and look at the, look at crime and our future in the context of what makes our society stronger mm -hmm. is something that we need to be doing and that takes political courage you know for us as individuals and from our elected officials and for us to insist that our elected officials show that kind of courage. Right. So for the incentive to kind of change the um, sort of, there, you're right in the sense that there, there seems to be a, a lot of sympathy um, as of recently in terms of realizing that there are severe flaws within the criminal justice system. But I was reading an article and 
can't specifically cite it right now, um, that was saying that uh, they had taken a poll of um, sort of this this group uh, who re- you know did acknowledge that changes had to be made and then should be made. But then in terms of asking them specific sort of executional points, it, it was, I think the percentage had faltered in that the sense that there is that empathy and there is that emotional response, but it seems like there, it, that's where kind of the miscommunication happens, um, where it's like, would you actually execute these changes? So what are the incentives um, for the American populace to really change their purview of what the criminal justice system should be and what criminality actually is? That kind of sort of uh, would then make it a very productive discussion to have that these are the you know the points that should be addressed. We have our work cut out for us right. because as a movement we have a basic understanding about what the system or you know or systems because there's every county's doing its own thing what they're trying to do and whether those are worth it but and we have some ideas about what would be better but we don't have the complete answer. And I'm not sure we have to have the complete answer for everything. I mean, right. that's not what government does. They mm-hmm. come up with something right. and they say, what's the best that we can do right now? And I think the problem is that we need to get our leaders to want to take some risks. You know, um, President Obama wanted to review all these people who are sentenced under old drug laws that if they were sentenced today would serve much less. Right. People that if they're sentenced today would be out now. He wants to review their sentences. And this is taking forever. He invited, I think, 20 or 30,000 applications and you know, and he got those. And he's given clemency to a couple hundred people. And it's because there's nine layers of bureaucratic review. Right. And, all, and many of those steps are clearly unnecessary. And like, for example, one of those steps is you can't have been have any violence in your past. It's like, that's not what you're currently sentenced for. <laughs> this is about, you know, you are sentenced under something that we now think is morally inappropriate and Congress has changed the law and I, I think it should be retroactive. Why does it matter about other things you may have done in the past if you're, unjust, if you're unjustly sentenced? And it, that it's so difficult for the president to show that kind of courage and reduce that bureaucracy and reduce those numbers of unnecessary steps mm. that we have our job cut out for us to make people understand. Yeah. And the best way I can do this is to talk about healthcare. Like doctors are pretty good about putting things in context. Right. You know, they want me to get my flu shot because the science says it means that like I won't get the flu or if I do it won't be as bad. Mm. And like, but we got to be clear. Like, if I get sick the day after I got a flu shot, it's probably a coincidence. If I get in a car accident after they give me the flu shot, <laughs> it was probably not caused by my flu shot. Tell that to anti-vaccineers. Right. Uh, I'm not <laughs> sure that rationality hits with them. Yeah, and that's, you know, <laughs> and if you think people are irrational about healthcare, which is why, for me, that's a fun analogy to use, it's a hundred times worse with crime. Yeah, a matter it, of security. Yeah. yeah, and you just have to look at, like, what makes me safer, what makes me feel safer. Like, I have an 11-year-old. We're always having this discussion at home. You know, should she ride her bike on the sidewalk? Riding your bike on the sidewalk looks safer. It feels safer, but cars can't see you. Mm. So when a car that's leaving a driveway is actually more likely to run over my stepdaughter because they can't see her in a place that feels safer to her, but is actually more dangerous. So sometimes we have to kind of 
find a way as a society to put aside these individual fears and make some kind of structural decisions about where we want to put our resources. What do we want our police to be doing? What do we want them to be enforcing? What, what are we distracting them on and, and what do we want them to do? And those are hard decisions. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we kind of like, uh, unfortunately, we only have time for one more question. Um, we kind of like to ask all the people on our show um, this question. What is your personal definition of success? And what advice would you give to students in defining success for themselves? Which is nebulous, we realize, and a bit of a weighty question. But I think success is making meaningful change on time and on budget. Because it's easy to come up with ideas. Mm -hmm. What's harder is to do them. And you may have, you're going to have to change. The first thing you do when you make a plan is change the plan. Right. right. But like at the end of the day, you have to say, did I do something of value and was it worth it? And what lessons can I draw so I can do it better next time? Because that's, you know, ideally if you, if you can iterate fast enough, we can learn, we can grow, we can become more successful so that every day we get more effective at meeting our goals. And it's about picking the right goals and it's about getting there and learning from what you did right and what you didn't do right. Right now, I love that. That is yeah. perhaps the most practical answer Absolutely. we've ever received, which yeah. I completely, that, that speaks to me, definitely. Um, so unfortunately, that is all the time we have today. Thank you again, Peter, for joining us. Um, and to all the listeners out there, remember to stay hungry.